Well, depending on what kind of Bible you have, this section of 2 Samuel 24 might have a ton of cross-references. And it'll say, this happens here and this happens here. Because everything that happens in 2 Samuel 24 is also told in 1 Chronicles 21. And 2 Samuel 24 was probably written down a couple hundred years after King David had died. But 1 Chronicles was written hundreds of years later after the Babylonian exile. And remember Ezra and Nehemiah, and they all came back to Jerusalem, and they came back and they started to rebuild Israel. That's when 1 and 2 Chronicles was written. So 1 and 2 Chronicles is written with knowledge of 1 and 2 Kings, but its emphasis is just a little bit different, and the culture that the people are in is a little bit different, and the message that they want to put forth, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is a little different. And so if you read both of them, Sometimes things don't match and it can get confusing. And there's, you know, I can fill up this whole platform up here with books of commentaries of people trying to argue about why this says this and that says this and this thing says this thing. There's one, one thing I want to, I want to lead with today is when you see, you'll see this in the gospels too. Sometimes stuff won't match. And the thing that doesn't match is like they counted all the people and I'm making these numbers up. And one place in the Bible, it'll say there were 600 people. And another place in the Bible, it'll say there were 10,000 people. And so it's easy to be like, okay, no, which one's right? Because if the Bible's wrong, there's a problem, right? Well, if I tell you this big old story about how I got robbed at Ruler yesterday, and I mentioned that the bananas were 69 cents a pound, and then in three weeks, I tell you a story about how I got robbed at Ruler three weeks ago and the bananas were like $1.50 a piece. Is the point of my story the price of bananas? <laughs> no. The point of my story is I got robbed at Ruler. I didn't really. I'm making this up. Some of that stuff is like that. Where there will be a discrepancy. They'll have this in ancient manuscripts. They'll find, you know, the most intact copy of written of the of, I almost said the Gospel of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. And there will be one pound, you know, a weight measurement off. And that makes them all question the authenticity of it. And it's like, no, just calm down. Sometimes numbers can get muddled. That's the main difference between 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. There's going to be some differences in numbers. There's also some differences in that you get some details and you get a little bit of commentary and a little bit of description, which came after the rabbis were sitting around discussing this for hundreds of years and trying to answer everybody's questions. And so they fill in some of the blanks. So we're going to come across some of those today. The very first one comes up in the very first verse of both chapters. But it's if you've read the book of Job... It's not too hard to sort out. 
And I'm not going to dwell on all the differences, but I want to talk about this one. So 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1 says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them. Hmm. Opening of 1 Chronicles 21. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So all of a sudden you have this question. Is God mad at Israel? And so he is getting David against Israel? Or is Satan trying to take down Israel and he's using David to do it? Now we know from the book of Job that it starts out and there's God. And the angels and the devil all come and they're all presenting things to God. And God talks to the devil and the devil's like, I'm just, you know, out going around doing stuff. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? The whole book of Job, the great point of it is you get no explanation of why in the world bad things happen. (laughs) And you can even read it at the beginning and be like, what? God, shut up. Why are you introducing Job to the devil? Why are you introducing the devil to Job? Because Job never sees that part. Job never knows that that part happens. And so here we have the same kind of thing that something is happening celestially and we don't get a good clear explanation of why. We don't even get a good explanation of is it instigated by the devil or is the devil doing it with God's permission and maybe God said to the devil, have you considered my King David? We don't get that. We don't know. So just like did the bananas cost 50 cents or the bananas were the bananas $1.80? That can be troubling and you can think about that, but hold on because that might not be the point of this story. Just like the point of the whole book of Job isn't what in the world was God doing when he said to Satan, hey, check out Job, how righteous he is. Yikes. And so the event is take a census. Number all of them. So the king said to Joab, and again, this isn't in the timeline of everything else we've talked about. This happened, you know, this might have happened 10 or 15 years ago, according to the timeline of everything else we've been talking about. He says to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Number the people that I may know the number of the people. Joab said, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are. While the eyes of my Lord, the king still see it. But why do you want to do this? Joab is saying, King, I just hope you have the biggest army ever. And I hope you get to see how big your army is. But good grief, don't make me do this. This is not a good idea. Even Joab, who's like a bloodthirsty killer and like a revenge all the time. He can see that this is not a good thing that's about to happen. This is This is not good. The king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Okay, so let's just do some deduction here. 
If you want to know how many delicious food restaurants there are in Evansville, would you send like the dietitian from Be Fit, who is like really trying to help everybody eat healthy and like watch their calories, would you send them out to check out all the best restaurants in Evansville? I wouldn't. I would send somebody that I know that loves cheeseburgers. I would probably send somebody that was had evidence of loving cheeseburgers. Not some gym personal trainer, right? When David sends out Joab, the head of the army, to count everybody, what's he going to have his eye on and what's he going to be counting? Army men. He is counting to develop an army. David is not curious, how many people do I have? He's how many fighters do I have? And the other funny thing is, and you get this from First uh, Chronicles, is when Joab goes out, he counts all the tribes, except for the tribe of Saul and the tribe of David. He only counts the tribes that might have another king that might want to be king. We know nobody from the house of Saul is ever going to be king. Because David's pretty much squashed that. We know that nobody from the tribe of Judah is going to be king because that's King David and it would be one of his kids. So they're all safe. But what about all these other tribes? Hmm. We better make sure we know how big their armies are. Gosh. The other thing that the rabbis used to argue about is at the opening it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel in First Chronicles, Satan stood against Israel and incited David that somehow this might have been something David did that was a sin that required some judgment, required some punishment, required is David. How are we going to make David repent from this? And you know how Paul in First Corinthians, he says, you know, this guy is sinning. Turn him over to Satan so that he can be restored. Turn him over. He says, Put this guy out of the fellowship. He's doing all this wrong stuff. You just let him run amok on his own because that's going to bring him back to repentance. That's going to bring him back to follow Jesus. And so there's also this theory that David did something. And so this is a, okay, David, we're just going to turn you over to Satan and we're going to give you a chance to repent, give you a chance to turn back. So David tries to make up for this by taking a census how often do we do we do this we we get into trouble we feel down uh you might be moody and you're like well i'm just going to solve it myself and what do you do you do something else stupid to solve the first problem that you got yourself into and here's david just snowballing so i'm going to take a census because then when i know how many people i have in my kingdom that'll make me happy then i'll be glad when i know how big my army is so they give this big description of all the people they count and all, everywhere they go. And they come back, verse 8. When they'd gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. It took that long to go count all of these people all over. Joab gives a sum. He says there's 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword 
and the men of Judah were 500,000. I said Judah. So that's not the tribe, but the region, right? Notice how the count is. It's not, here's what the census is. Here's how many people there are. Here's how many women. Here's how many children. It's, here's how many sword slingers you've got. And then something happens. And David is struck. Oh. I almost wonder if he heard that number. And that number is just so ridiculously huge. Remember, David was defeating Saul when he was starving, hiding in a cave with 400 guys that had debt and were murderers, right? It gives this weird description of, his, of all of his men. He had 400 men and he was defeating King Saul. Now he has 1.3 million fighting men. And you almost wonder if, if whatever he was afraid of, whatever he was trying to make up for, whatever thing he was trying to, I'm just going to show, I'm just going to figure out how big my army is. When he heard he had 1.3 million, if it was just like, oh my gosh, why, why was I worried, right? Why didn't I trust in the Lord? Why was I scared of how big my army was when I have 1.3 million valiant men? David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So it's more going on than just, I want to know how many people there are, right? It's not just a census. There's something that went on in David's heart that he wanted this census to make up for something that he was lacking, that only the Lord could provide. Or he made this census because he had a plan in his heart to do something that the Lord did not want him to do. Gosh. So he is repenting. He says, I have done foolishly. This is very genuine. This is the real deal. He is really, he, he is realizing the weight of all of this stuff that he has done. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, and said, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them, and I will do this to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said, Do you want three years of famine to come upon the land? Do you want to flee for three months? Before your enemies, while your foes are chasing you and chasing you down? Or do you want three days of pestilence in the land? Three days of a, of a plague. Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. This prophet says that. Wow. David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hands of men. A famine for three years, David already had because the Gibeonites, remember that? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. There was some family of Saul and Saul tried to wipe out all the Gibeonites, but they made a vow that they wouldn't. And so they finally went and got the seven remaining kids, descendants of Saul, and they hung them all up on the wall and they all died and it was all gruesome. 
and the drought, the famine stopped, but it was three years of famine and drought. So David's been through that. Three months of being on the run and fleeing. We had that from Absalom. Was, was probably not three months long, but it was definitely being on the run and fleeing. And the whole early phase of David's life was being on the run and fleeing and having his foes against him. And so the thing that he picks is three days of pestilence. I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of men. See what David knows from the history of God is that when God inflicts, he also shows mercy. If God's going to turn him over to nature and a famine, nature's not going to have mercy. Nature doesn't have mercy. It's just a, a scientific, biological thing that happens. God can affect it, but it's not going to show mercy. God can turn David over to one of his enemies, the Philistines or somebody, and those people are not going to show mercy. And they are just going to drive, drive, drive. But pestilence from God, you ready for this? Almost every place that God pours out a plague or a pestilence, most of them happen in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. And every time except once, it stops early because of God's mercy. So David knows if God says he's going to give me three days of, mercy, of plague and pestilence, every other time God brought plague and pestilence for a certain amount of time, God showed mercy and cut that time short and didn't give it to the full. Isn't that wild? So one of them, all the people are grumbling against Aaron and this plague breaks out. And it's a fire, it's consuming fire, it's burning all these people. And Aaron, Moses says to Aaron, take your incense and go and save the people. And Aaron grabs his incense censer and he runs and all the people are getting killed. And he goes up and he holds up his smoke and the fire stops and all these people are saved. There's another time there's a plague breaking out and all these people are dying. And Phineas, son of Eleazar, sees these two people going into their tent. One is Jewish and one is a foreigner. And that was the whole reason for the plague. And Phineas, son of Eleazar, goes right into the tent behind him and runs a spear through both of them together. And the plague stops. The only time the plague went all the way through to the end was the 10th plague against Pharaoh in Egypt. And it went all the way to the end until the firstborn of every, it says every livestock, every family, everybody in Egypt that didn't have the blood over their doorway, everybody died. Whoa. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. Guess what? The word that's in here of who died 
were some of the, it was only the fighting men that David was counting. So again, the census wasn't about how many people do we have so we can give them all cake on my birthday. The census was how big is my army? And so God's judgment came and said, David, your army isn't, isn't where your salvation is. So we're going to take away some of it. Gosh. So this pestilence is going. The other thing the rabbis talk about, which is really kind of cool. So if David would have picked a famine, it would have affected everybody, but probably not him. You think the king has some store, store, uh, storage space for food? You think the king is going to probably be okay during a famine? Yeah, probably so. And if he's got this army of 1.3 million soldiers and there's a fight with his enemies for three months, you think the king's going to probably be okay during that? If you've got 1.3 million fighting men to protect you, he'll probably be okay during that. But a pestilence is equal opportunity. Everyone is susceptible to it. Everyone is victim to it. And so this is the most fair, because those people didn't ask to be counted. They actually asked to not be counted, right? So they don't deserve to be in the middle of David's big mess. So the pestilence comes and it makes its way to Jerusalem. And whatever it looked like, whatever it was, whatever form it took, uh, it's something that's just happening within hours. So it is visible and it is effective because 70,000 men died. So whatever it is and whatever it looked like, it makes it to Jerusalem and they can see it. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity, said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. So God, remember Abraham has his knife up to kill Isaac. And the angel says, stop, don't do it. In this case, this angel is killing and God says, stop, that's enough. Well, there's another description in uh, First Chronicles. David lifted his eyes, saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven with his sword drawn. And David said to God, was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord, be against me and against my father's house. Do not let the plague be on your people. David's, David has like this deep, deep repentance. This is not their fault, Lord. I alone sinned. Wow. This is uh, just totally like what you read in Psalm 51. Against you, you alone have I sinned, O Lord. You might hear people and they'll be confessing and they'll say, I was really sorry that you were upset that I did this. And that's just a worthless apology, right? Because I'm not sorry that I did it. I'm sorry that you were mad that I did it. (laughs) I'm not confessing. I'm confessing your sin that you got mad at me when I did the bad thing. David's not doing that. David is being genuine. He says, Lord, 
You gave me chances and I did not take them. This is all my fault. I take 100% responsibility for this. Those 70,000 people and this people of Jerusalem that you are now bringing your plague to do not deserve this. It's me. And it's like that was just what God needed. That was the exact thing that God needed to, to hear David say right from his heart. To say, I am the one who did this and I, I am the wrong one. Not, well, you shouldn't have given me so many people to count. Or you should have given me a better commander than Joab. Or you shouldn't have put this woman with me to feed me this apple. No. I alone have sinned. And I own it. So God stops. God says, stop it right here. This is where this is going to stop. This, this business is over. For, from what we can tell, it was still going to go on, just like all the other plagues. It wasn't the appointed time to be done yet, but it stopped at this spot. This spot that it stopped is the exact same spot where God told Abraham, hold back your sword, don't kill the boy. It's Mount Moriah. It's the same site. It happened in the same place. You guys, that's crazy. Same mountaintop, same hillside. Well, on that hillside, there just happened to be a little factory thing. And it was a, um, a threshing floor. And what you would do, you, it was up high on the mountainside, so there'd always be wind blowing. And they'd have all these planks of wood laid out. And you would lay out all of your wheat. And then you would get a whole bunch of oxen and they would drag a bunch of weights over the wheat, over the wood floor, and it would crack the shells off of the wheat and the wind that's always blowing would blow away the chaff and you would just have wheat there and it would, there would be uh, loose boards so all the wheat would fall through the boards down underneath into this big old section where you could harvest it all out. And it's kind of like a factory, right? Um, it's just this big flat area and everybody would bring their wheat up there to do that and the wind would blow the chaff away. So one time me and my wife, we went to West Baden, French Lick, all that cool stuff and see the wells and see the train and all that business. We didn't go to the casino and outside the casino, they have all these shops where you could buy like a $700 top hat or like a $900 scarf. What? I don't even want to be in here. Like I don't even I don't even want the oil of my fingers to be on this and drop the price down $150. Like what in the world? So all of that, oh my gosh, we're gonna have a little commentary here. It's just this big commentary on it's a big um it's a big worship temple of money, right? Of Oh, on your way in, you see all these expensive, lovely, wonderful, nice things. Oh, I sure hope I can win enough money to get that at the casino. You go into the casino, you give them all of your money. Oh, I won all that money. Now I can come out and buy the $900 hat and I can show everybody what a rich man I am. It's sort of a, a whole shrine of gaining wealth, right? Well, back then, a place like a threshing floor was a sign of the gods. Okay, hold on, wait, what? Yes, the gods are being kind to us and they're providing for us. And they're providing for us all of this wheat. 
So it wouldn't just be a wheat threshing area. It would be a site of giving thanksgiving to the God of the harvest who has provided for us and given us everything we need. So that area, just like the casino and all the rich stores around it, sort of become a shrine of this whole message. A threshing floor would also kind of take on a religious air and you would have statues around there worshiping the God of the harvest that provided all these things. But there's a problem. It belongs to Aruna the Jebusite. And the Jebusites did not worship Yahweh. The Jebusites were uh, just another, another pagan group that lived up there on Jerusalem, on the mount. And remember when David was going to come fight it, and they said, we'll see if all the blind and lame can fight all them out. Those were the Jebusites. And they didn't defeat all of them. And a lot of the Jebusites lived in harmony and they had a whole big old section of town that they lived in. And they continued their pagan practices and they owned the threshing floor. And so when this big old plague, whatever it looked like, you guys, oh my gosh, comes and God says, stop it right now. I've heard David stop this plague. It stops right there, smack dab in the middle of the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And David says, I want to go to that spot and make an offering. And so David goes there. I'm making this go real fast now. Aruna the Jebusite sees David coming. In First Chronicles, it says he saw the plague and he saw the angel. And he was like, oh my gosh. David shows up. And he says, my God has stopped the plague. I want to make a sacrifice right here, right now. And Aruna the Jebusite says, yes, do whatever you can to make your God stop this plague. So he reveals that he is not, he does not believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he owns the spot where Abraham became the father of the faith. A couple hundred years maybe a thousand years ago. So David says, I'm going to buy this land from you. Can I buy this land? Arun is like, no, you just take it for free, king. Whatever, it's all yours. David says, I'm not going to take something for free and offer it to God. I'm going to buy it from you. So he buys it. He builds an altar there. He makes a sacrifice. And then we find out why in the world this is even in the Bible. And why is this stuck at the end of 2 Samuel? What does this have to do with anything? This is just some crazy wild exploit. All this, let's see, let's skip down to um, verse 23. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, I'll buy it all from you for a price. I won't offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God. They cost me nothing. Verse 25, David built there an altar to the Lord offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and the Lord responded, and the plague was stopped. And you think that is awesome. And then you go reading through your Bible, and everything's cool, and everything's awesome. You read through all of First Chronicles, and you think, boy, this sounds a whole lot like Second Samuel. You get into Second Chronicles, and you're reading along, and you get to Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem 
on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. That place where God's wrath was being poured out because David had sinned and it stopped would become the temple. The Holy of Holies where people of all nations would come to worship God. The place where Jesus would stand and say, this is to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. That spot, that threshing floor is where Jesus would teach day in and day out where all of his, a ton of his teachings, whenever it talks about Jesus teaches in the temple, I want you to think this was where God's plague was stopped. From David's, whatever David's sin was, it stopped right there. And now even today, the Temple Mount and the Dome of the Rock and all of that is built on this very same spot. So, when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about the temple, I want you to just have in your head all of this. Gosh, this is where God has been showing mercy. Where people have been depending on God's mercy since Abraham walked up this hill. Oh, wait, it gets worse. Guess what the rabbis said the Garden of Eden was? <laughs> they said the cornerstone of the wall of the Garden of Eden was laid on Mount Moriah. Now, do we know if that's true or not? I don't even know if we can know that's true this side of heaven. But that's how big a deal that little spot is. That they would think that it was the cornerstone of Eden. That it's the spot where Abraham would sacrifice Isaac. That it's the spot where David's, the plague would be turned back as he depended on God's mercy. And it's the place where Jesus would stand and they would all shout, crucify him, crucify him, and send him off to Pilate to die on the cross. All right. Where are we going now? Now that we know where the temple's going to get built, we know sort of who's going to be king next. We're probably going to spend the next two weeks in 1 Kings so we can get Solomon established. And then once we get a Solomon established, we're going to jump ahead about a thousand years and talk about this guy named Jesus that I like a whole lot. So, very good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that we can always depend on your mercy, that we can always trust in your love. Even if Satan himself is against us, we can trust you and we can rely on you. And we can know that you will help us and see us through. You might even turn some awesome, incredible thing like a threshing floor into the temple of the living God. We love you. We thank you. And we trust you, Lord. Amen.